The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Now, our Holy Father, you are perfect in thought, word, and deed. There is none like you. We thank you that you would allow us to approach you on the merits of God the Son. Thank you for the righteousness that he credits to any person who will call upon him in faith. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did not abandon us when you went back to heaven. But just as the Father promised and just as you said, you sent the Spirit as our seal, as our pledge that the work you've begun you will complete. Thank you that he is our helper. And he is here for us today if we will depend upon him, that we might become all that you have destined for us to be. Now, Father, I need his help today as I do every moment, but especially as I open your infallible eternal word. Help me to rightly divide it. Come fill me and anoint me. Spirit of God, I pray that you would work in the hearts of believers and unbelievers who have never met you. May you convict them as you promised of sin, righteousness, and judgment and bring them today into the kingdom. Lord Jesus, may you be glorified, and we ask it in your holy and righteous name. Amen. Take God's word this morning, would you, and turn to the first general epistle written by the apostle Peter. If you are new to the Bible, just find the Revelation and scan back a few pages, and you will quickly come to 1 Peter. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, you'll be interested to know that this passage that we're going to examine today, along with a key passage in the Revelation and some concurrent scripture, is critical to understanding the book of Revelation. Our thoughts, our perspectives on the Revelation, if you understand this text that we're going to examine today, are governed by the truths that are found here. So we're going to use this as kind of the launching pad. Now, when we came to Revelation 19 and verse 10, I almost stopped and thought, well, I'll do a whole sermon just in Revelation 19 and verse 10, but I didn't really want to break the flow of the 19th chapter, and I thought, well, this would be an appropriate time for me to do it before we come into the final paragraph of the 20th chapter where we left off. Let me read to you Revelation 19 and verse 10. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, John writes that to a biblically literate culture, and he assumes that they have a certain understanding as to what that actually means. Unfortunately, today we live in a biblically illiterate country where few Christians really know what that means. But as we studied it, we saw that the very nature, the very purpose of prophecy is to testify to the Lord Jesus. The spirit and sum of all prophecy is about Jesus. It's not about what, it's about who. Now, the cults in our day, they use prophecy to try to win unsuspecting, naive people with the what. 
But in Holy Scripture, the emphasis is on the who. God is not trying to get you to believe something. He's trying to get you to believe in someone. And that someone is the Lord Jesus. And so if you study the revelation and all you see is an antichrist and the false prophet and all kinds of judgments that come upon the world and you do not see Jesus, then you've missed the message of the entire book. It's an apocalypsis. It's an unveiling, as the opening verse says, about the Lord Jesus. In fact, in the final thought of Scripture spoken by Jesus, he said, yes, I am coming quickly. It's about him. And then John will say, yes, amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. Now, with that said, I want to begin by reading our passage. I hope you have found it, 1 Peter chapter 1, and I want to begin reading in verse 10. Follow along in your Bibles. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, as you read through Scripture, you discover that there are two prominent themes that run all the way through the Bible. One describes the way to God. The focus is on helping lost people come into a right relationship with Him. And the second major theme concerns the walk with God, that is, for the believer. So one major theme is how you become saved. That's the doctrine of justification. And then once you are saved, how you grow, that's the doctrine of sanctification. And Peter actually deals with both themes in his short little letter, but the emphasis is on the latter, the process of sanctification. So he's not focusing so much on stained glass theology, but what we would call grass-stained advice. He's trying to take the great theological truths of Scripture and put them into shoe leather so that we can practice them. Now, of course, he's writing to believers at a time where there is great hostility towards the church. And God in His providence is preparing the saints to whom He is writing because the worst persecution is about to unfold through an emperor by the name of Nero. Now, in one sense, of course, times have always been difficult for God's people. There's always been heartache and sorrow and tribulation and trials right after Adam sinned. The Bible says in Genesis, "'Cursed is the ground because of you.'" And toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Man from the beginning has been in difficulty. And as I was reading again through First Peter this week, I'm reminded that the church was born in very hostile times. But I also know from the Revelation and numerous other texts in the New Testament and the Old Testament that the church will be completed in very difficult times. The bride of Christ will experience the worst time at the end of time before the rapture and then the unbelieving world through the tribulation period. Jesus warned us of a day, then they will deliver you to tribulation, will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. So there's parallels between the time frame in which Jesus came into the world, a very dark time in human history, 
And the Bible prophesies that he will come again in a very dark time compared to the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Now, as we've been studying Revelation, I hope you don't get the impression that someday we're just going to be raptured and uh, we won't experience any heartache or any trial or any difficulty. That's not true. We will be raptured, and certainly we will miss the most horrific time the world has ever known. But prior to that time, things will be difficult, and God warns us. Now, let me set the context for our passage this morning. First, the broad context and the media context. If you want to understand a book of the Bible, just read it through several times at one sitting, and you'll see how all the parts fit together. As this slide shows, there are three major divisions to First Peter. Beginning in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2 and verse 12, the theme is the salvation of the believer. And in this section, he deals with both our positional salvation, what we call justification, and our experiential salvation, that is sanctification. God positionally declares you righteous the moment you are saved, and so every believer is called a saint. But then God wants to work out your salvation. He wants your position to show up in your daily life. That's called sanctification. Then beginning in chapter 2 and verse 13 through chapter 3 and verse 12, he deals with the submission of the believer. And Peter will deal with submission as it relates to government, employees, marriage relationships, and just generally to all of life. He is going to deal specifically with submission as a key to a victorious Christian life. You will never be over unless you are under. And if you have a rebellious spirit towards authority that God has put over you and we're all under authority, then you will miss God's blessing that he wants to work out through you. Then the third section, beginning in chapter 3, verse 13, all the way through chapter 5, deals with the suffering of the believer. And he will show us that we are to suffer in the same way that Jesus left us an example to suffer. And many times that suffering is what we call unjust suffering. So if you want to sum up 1 Peter, three simple words, salvation, submission, suffering. That's the book of 1 Peter. Now let's zoom in on the immediate context here in the opening chapter. We first learn that we are chosen by God before the foundation of the world. That is what is commonly called the doctrine of election. Look at the opening verse, 1 Peter 1, verse 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, you see that word foreknowledge. I put the Greek up there so you can visually see it. It is the word prognosis. We get our word gnosis, which means knowledge, pro. It's a prefix in English. It simply means before knowledge. We are told that the election of God on the believer is based according to his foreknowledge. Now, please understand, every biblical Christian believes in the doctrine of election. God plainly says that he elected us before the foundation of the world. That's not the point of contention. The point of contention is not if we are elected, but how we are elected. One five-point Calvinist, R.C. Sproul, recently gone to heaven, he said this, when God foreknows a person, he sets his love upon him. Our Lord's choice of men and women for salvation is based on his decision to set his love upon them, 
not his knowledge of what they will do. But that's not what the word means. And when you let Scripture interpret Scripture and you see how this word prognosco, foreknowledge, is used in the New Testament, it is quite obvious that it means prior knowledge. Peter, by the way, uses this identical word in 2 Peter chapter 3 when he discusses fake pastors who are untaught and unstable, and so they distort the Bible. You might want to put out in the margin 2 Peter 3.17, and let me read that to you. Peter writes, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, now it's the verbal form, prognosco, it looks almost identical, just a different ending. Beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Peter is just reminding us as he opens the second chapter, that there have always been false teachers and there will always be false teachers. And so we should expect false teachers to try to work their way into the church. And he says, because I'm telling you ahead of time, because you know this ahead of time beforehand, prognosco, watch yourself. Acts 26, here's another usage of the word foreknowledge. The apostle Paul is standing before one of the Herods in the New Testament. There are seven Herods in the Bible. This is King Agrippa the first, and he speaks of, or the second actually, he speaks of the prior knowledge that others had of his life. Let me read Paul's testimony before King Agrippa. So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me, prognosco, since they have had foreknowledge, same word, for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our nation. Paul is saying the Jews in Jerusalem knew what I was like in my past. And he, of course, is going to go on and tell about his conversion. So again, foreknowledge just means that God has prior knowledge. If God didn't know who is going to be saved ahead of time, God wouldn't be God. One of the attributes of God is that He is omniscient. And so we studied in Revelation 13 in verse 8, He's speaking about those who follow the Antichrist. And He says, all who dwell on earth will worship Him, the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who has been slain. God says that some people's names were not written in the book of life as saved people before He ever created the world. Why? Because God, in His foreknowledge, knew that they would reject and disdain the revelation that He has given them, either in creation or conscience or in the preaching of the gospel, and that they would not be saved. Now, please understand, that in no way mitigates against your free will. You are a free moral agent. And yes, God knows the future. That makes him God. But he in no way takes away your free will. That makes you made in his image. So Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us. It's the word in Greek that we get our word, elect. 
He elected us, you could render it, in him how before the foundation of the world. So in the immediate context, we learn that we are chosen by God, but not only are we chosen by God, this chapter also affirms that we are accepted by God. It's one thing to be chosen, it's another thing to be accepted. And so this chapter speaks of our adoption in the Lord. You know, some children are adopted because they have to be adopted. You're the closest relative, you feel a sense of responsibility, you don't necessarily want the child, but you feel a responsibility. But it's a wonderful thing when a child is adopted because the parents want to adopt that child, and that child is loved. And that's precisely God's heart for us when He adopts us into His family, as brought out in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And beyond that, in the first nine verses, He reminds us that once we are chosen and accepted, that we are secured for all of eternity. The Bible affirms the eternal security of the believer, that when God saves you, He saves you forever. He saves us, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, that's the broad and that's the immediate context. And if you read this first chapter carefully, you will see that there is one key theme and one word that repeats itself all the way through. And it's the theme of salvation. In verse 2, he describes how we were chosen of God so that we could be saved. And he mentions the Messiah's blood. In verse 3, he mentions being born again. In verse 4, he speaks of our salvation that cannot fade away. In verse 5, he speaks of a salvation ready to be revealed, which causes Peter to go into a chorus of praise. He states, notice in verses 8 and 9, and though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul souls. So notice now how verse 10 begins, which is the subject this morning. It begins as to this salvation. Again, this whole theme that dominates this section is that of salvation, and it ought to be, because your need, my need, everyone's need is for good old-fashioned biblical salvation. And we never have to be ashamed of preaching the message of salvation. It is the most important thing anyone could ever hear from your lips today. And if any church is not majoring on helping people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I'm telling you, they are not worth the real estate they sit on. God has called His people to preach the gospel in season and out of season, that as we go, we are make, to make disciples. I heard of a little lady from the Midwest, and she was traveling in a tour group there in the great cathedrals of London, and she went into Westminster Abbey, the place where the elite of London worship and where many of the kings and princes are honored and that they're given a place for burial. I've been in that place, and one of the things that burns in my mind is a magnificent picture, a very famous art piece of art, where you see Jesus at a door knocking. And inscribed below are the words from Revelation 3.20. 
And as this guide was showing the magnificent stained glass windows and the detailed sculptures and that great work of art, he asked, are there any questions? One elderly woman raised her hand and she said, when was the last time someone got saved in this church? <laughs> that was a good question, I thought. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And I wanted to say, if you're not fishing for men this morning, you're really not following Christ. That's the commission that God has given the church. Now, there are three truths that I want us to ponder on today as we think about the spirit of prophecy and our salvation. If you are here for the first time, there's a note-taking outline. And the first truth concerns our salvation that was carefully searched in the past. Peter first focuses on our salvation that was carefully searched in the past. So having described the person to whom he wrote and the blessings of salvation that, that we have received, he then goes on to show that the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith is not a new doctrine. So Peter reminds us here, beginning in verse 10, that salvation was spoken of a long time ago by the Old Testament prophets. Look at verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. The Old Testament prophets were inspired by God, and they had one principal message, and it was the message of salvation. Now, they lived on the other side of the cross, and so Peter tells us they prophesied of the grace that would come. Don't you love that word grace? I certainly do. Romans 11 and verse 6 speaks of the unmerited favor of God. That's what grace is. It's something we don't deserve or earn. He says, but if it, God's choosing of us in salvation, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You understand what he's saying? He says, what makes the grace of God the grace of God is you in no way earn or merit it. It's totally unearned. In God's kindness, he has rescued sinners who deserve his holy wrath. Now, there are three key words that we should know in God's dealing with men. One is justice, the other is mercy, and the third is grace that Peter is highlighting here in our passage. Justice is God giving us what we deserve. You don't want that, believe me. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. We deserve His wrath, but in His long-suffering, in His patience, He longs for people to be saved, and He holds back His wrath. But grace, Kessid in the Old Testament, is God giving us what we don't deserve, God showering His kindness and love upon us and giving us a holy right standing in His sight. And of course, the basis by which God can withhold His wrath and shower His blessing on us while at the same time remaining just is through a substitute who fully and completely bore that wrath and justly took our punishment. And that's what these Old Testament prophets were writing and studying about. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. By the way, God has only had one way of salvation through all time. Don't think for one second that people under the Old Covenant were saved by works 
by keeping the law and that we are saved by grace. No, anyone that you meet in heaven will be there because of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only difference was they were on the other side of the cross. And granted, people at different times as God unfolded His revelation throughout the Tanakh had varying degrees of what they understood. But they're on this side of the cross, and they're looking forward to the solution. And as God unfolded it, many were looking forward to a substitute whom they called the Messiah. They believed that God would have to make a provision that they could not save themselves. We live on the other side of the cross. We're looking back at what Jesus has already accomplished for us. And there are many passages throughout the Word of God that plainly teach that truth. Think with me for a moment. Who is the very first prophet in all of Scripture? I hope you know that it is Abel. Now, you don't learn that reading the Old Testament. That is a truth that the Lord Jesus reveals in that scathing sermon that he gave to the scribes and the Pharisees. Let me read to you from Matthew 23. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bechariah. Christ incriminated the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees with the blood of all the prophets, beginning with Abel, the first prophet, and ending with Zechariah, the last prophet. Now, Abel was a prophet who comes on early, obviously, in the Scriptures. He is the fourth person ever to live on planet Earth. And in describing all the prophets, when Peter meets Cornelius there in Caesarea by the sea, he says, of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Now, Abel... He offered a better sacrifice, the writer of the Hebrews says. Why? Because he came on the basis of faith. Where does a man get faith? It's based on revelation. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And God had revealed to his parents that you could not come by fig leaf religion trying to cover your shame with the works of your hands, but you had to come on the basis of blood because sin deserves death. And so Abel brought a better sacrifice because he came on the basis of what God had revealed. And the Bible says, since he is a prophet, he bore witness through his name, Jesus' name, that everyone believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. In other words, all the prophets of the Old Testament, beginning with Abel, were pointing to the coming work of the Messiah. Now, they didn't know that his name would be Yeshua or Jesus in English, but they knew that Messiah must come. And so they had to make notice, careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now these words, searches and inquiries, they're actually very strong words in the original. One of the words speaks of a, a miner who would dig to the bottom to get the very ore at the core of the rock base. And that's what these men did. They had to work hard. They had to study hard about this salvation that God wrote about through them. Now, I know it's a little easier for us because hindsight, obviously, is always 20-20, but they didn't have the same clear picture that we have today. 
In fact, Paul speaks of a mystery in the book of Ephesians, something that was hidden to the Old Testament prophets but have now been revealed. And if you've been with us in our study of Daniel and Revelation, we see that concerning Messiah, there are two mountain peaks of prophecy. On one mountain, Mount Moriah, he will die and suffer. On another mountain, he will come again, the Mount of Olivet, and he will set his feet on that mountain and literally split it in two. And so they had two mountain peaks of prophecy. What they could not see was that there was a valley between those two mountain peaks. And very often, as we've seen in our study of Revelation, in a single verse of Scripture, the whole career of the Messiah is discussed from the time he would die until the time he comes a second time to reign in glory. And so here are these men who made careful search and inquiries. Furthermore, verse 11 says, they were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Do you know what that means in plain English? (laughs) It means that after the Spirit of God inspired them to write the text, they had to go back and study the text to see what it meant. It's rather mind-boggling when you think about it. After they wrote about it, they studied it, and they said, now, what does this mean? Even these men who were so inspired by by God that they wrote literally the Word of God had to understand it, and they couldn't understand it unless, as the verse says here, the Spirit of Christ within them revealed it to them. And by the way, there are many designations that are used in Scripture to describe God the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1, he's called the Spirit of God. In Judges 3, he's called the Spirit of Jehovah, or the Spirit of Yahweh. He is called in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, the Spirit of our God. He is called, as we said in the baptismal formula in the first servant, the Holy Spirit, one of his more common designations. And very often, he is linked to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what you would expect. I was speaking to a Jewish man a week or so ago, and he said to me, well, uh, I have more in common with a Muslim than I have with you. I said, how so? He said, at least a Muslim is a monotheist, and you Christians, you worship three gods. I said, no, we don't worship three gods. Our New Testament affirms God is one. We believe what the Shema says, hear, Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who coexists in three eternal persons. And the concept of the triunity of God is written all over the universe. This pulpit has width, it has height, it has depth. The depth is not the width, the width is not the depth, the height is not the width. They are distinct, yet they are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. Time, there's past, there's present, there's future. The future is not the past. The past is not the future. The future is not the present. But you cannot have one without the other. They are distinct, yet they are inseparable. And because the members of the Godhead, though distinct, are inseparable, you would expect similar terms. And so the Holy Spirit in Acts 16 is called the Spirit of Jesus. He's called in Galatians the Spirit of His Son, the Spirit of Jesus Christ in Philippians. And in Romans 8 and here in 1 Peter 1.11, He's called the Spirit of Christ. And that shouldn't totally surprise us in light of what Jesus said. Let me remind you from John 14 and verse 16. He said, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. 
he promised to ask the Father for another helper. We've seen that word. We saw how critical it was to many passages in the Revelation. And we have noted that there are two critical words for another in the New Testament. There is the word heteros, and there is the word alos, and they both come into English as another. One, heteros, means the opposite type or kind. And so we have words that come into English. We speak of uh, heterosexuals, they're opposite. We speak of heterodoxy, uh, something that's contrary to sound orthodoxy. But then there is the word alos, that means another of the same kind. If I asked you for a heteros biblios, you could, I'd be asking you for another book of a different kind. You could give me a book on sailing or geography or any book that you could find, and you would meet the request. But if I asked you for an alos biblios, you'd have to give me an identical book just like this, with the same creases, the same torn pages, the same underline, exactly like this. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another alos another helper, just like myself, that he might be with you forever because when he comes to live inside of you, he never leaves you because he seals you for the day of redemption. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. That's the promise of the new covenant. About 500 people max, and that may be generous as we studied in our course on pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. About 500 people max had some kind of a relationship with the Holy Spirit, very select. But under the new covenant, every believer is indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus can say, I will not leave you. I will come to you. How will he come to us? Through the Spirit of Christ, the members of the Godhead are inseparable. Jesus, speaking of his principal ministry, said, he shall glorify me for he shall take of mine and disclose it to you. And so in one sense, the ministry of revealing Christ is not entirely new, and that that's what these prophets were seeking to understand. They were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating them. But on the other hand, that is an ongoing ministry today. The Holy Spirit wants to take truth, and he wants to disclose it to you. Now, verse 11 indicates that these men saw ahead of time the sufferings of Christ. That's his death on the cross. But they also saw the glories that would follow. That's his resurrection. That's his ascension. That's his return and his reign upon the earth. And they saw this centuries ever before the Messiah had taken on human flesh. You say, well, how could they know since Jesus had not yet come? Again, the spirit within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, enabled them to write the message, but he also enabled them to, to understand the message. Now, sometimes, of course, you will hear these critics and they'll say, well, Jesus was not really the Messiah. He just knew the Tanakh, the Old Testament, well. He knew the prophecies. And so he arranged his life in such a way to fulfill the prophecies so that he could claim to be the Messiah. Have you ever heard that? Of course you have. Well, I want to tell you something. 
Those liberal scholars who teach that in one sense, they're right. (laughs) He did arrange it all. The only difference between what they believe and I believe is that I realize he arranged the fulfillment centuries before it ever happened. He arranged to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Do you think you could have arranged to be born where you wanted to be born? He arranged not only to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, as the prophet Micah said in Micah chapter 5, the Bible also tells us that he arranged that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah chapter 12. He arranged to be crucified by nails having been driven in his hands and his feet 10 centuries before, seven centuries before crucifixion was even invented in Psalm 22. He arranged 700 years before Bethlehem that he, that he would be beaten with clubs, that his beard would be plucked out, that he would be spit upon. He arranged that the soldiers there at the crucifixion would gamble for his garments, for his tunic. He arranged that they would give him vinegar to drink, as prophesied in Psalm 22. He arranged that not one single bone in his body would be broken, as prophesied in Psalm 34 and verse 20, and as pictured in the Passover lamb. He arranged centuries before that his body would be pierced through and its side with a spear, as Zechariah 12 indicates. He arranged centuries before, as Isaiah 53 indicates, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Some of you visited that rich man's tomb with me last week. He arranged that he would be raised from the dead and that millions of people would follow him with no hope of material gain and at the cost of their own lives. Yes, Jesus arranged it all, and what a marvelous arrangement. He arranged hundreds of prophecies, and every single one came true. That points to the unique inspiration of the Bible, and there's no other religious book on the face of the earth that can make that claim. You see, the liberal scholars have a real problem, because if Jesus is just rigging all the prophecies, then how did he get the Romans and the Jews and his enemies to help fulfill him, men who wanted to deny that he was the Messiah? Every strand of prophecy forms a strong cable that cannot be broken, pointing to the divine inspiration of God's Word. Now, I hope you realize that we never need to be ashamed of this book. I hope you realize that the Quran and the Book of Mormon and the Vedas and the Upanishads and the Book of Wisdom that the Samaritans use, those have no marks of inspiration, only the Holy Scripture. And so Peter is telling us that the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Turn over a few pages to Second. Peter for a moment. Second Peter chapter 1. I want you to see something very important. Second Peter chapter 1. Notice what he writes in verse 20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, or some of your Bibles say one's own origination. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You see that word moved? It's a nautical term in the New Testament era that describes the wind filling the sails of a ship to move it along. And Peter is saying that these Old Testament prophets basically had their sails up, and the Spirit of God was moving. 
He was writing through them that what they wrote didn't originate with them. It wasn't a matter of their own interpretation, but they were moved by the Spirit of God spoken by Him. What a marvelous picture of inspiration. And this is the reason Christ was able to take those two despondent disciples there on the Emmaus Road as they walked approximately seven miles, and he proved to them that he was indeed the Messiah. They were so heartbroken. They thought all of their hopes were crushed and lost because the one whom they thought, looking at the second mountain peak, where he comes back in glory to rule with an eye, rod of iron, they thought all of his, their hopes were cr crushed because he was dead. And so he opens the Scriptures. Listen to what Luke records. He said to them, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. I would have loved to have heard that sermon. Maybe we'll get an instant replay in heaven. In other words, he's saying, haven't you guys read your Bibles? Don't you know what it says? Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Yes, it was. His question is predicated on what the prophets had written about him, what Peter is saying of the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And so Luke records, in beginning with Moses, that's the first five books, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Listen, there is a unity from Genesis to Revelation because the Scriptures are all about the Lord Jesus. It's all about God's way of salvation beginning in Genesis and going all the way through Malachi. That's why Philip the Evangelist, as he's called from God to leave that great revival and to meet a single eunuch who has only the prophet Isaiah, and he can lead him to Christ through the prophet Isaiah. And he shows that Jesus, even before the first book of the New Testament was penned, he can show and prove to him from the Scriptures, the Old Testament, that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. Listen, the Bible, the Old Testament, is not primarily about something. It's about someone. All the Scriptures are about him. That's what we've been studying in the Revelation, the unveiling, the apocalypsis of Christ for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And that's why Jesus confronted those Pharisees and he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is these that bear witness of me. Listen, when you step into the first book of the Old Testament into Genesis, you begin to see that it's all about the Lord Jesus. In Genesis, he is the seed of the woman. He is Isaac there on top of Mount Moriah. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, he is the smitten rock. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet who is to come. In Joshua, he is the captain of the Lord of hosts. In Judges, he's the deliverer of God's people. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel, he is the anointed one. In 2 Samuel, he is the king and throne. In 1 Kings, he is the glory of the Lord filling the temple. In 2 Kings, he is the royal seed. In 1 Chronicles, he is the glorious king. In 2 Chronicles, he is the Lord who appears to Solomon. In Ezra, he is the Lord of our fathers. In Nehemiah, he is the restorer of Israel. In Esther, he is the advocate who pleads for his people. In Job, he is my redeemer who lives, who shall stand upon the earth. 
earth. In the book of Psalms, he is the good shepherd. In Proverbs, he's the embodiment of wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is the key that unlocks the significance of life. In the Song of Solomon, he is the heavenly bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the son, virgin-born son of God. He is the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he is the divine potter who is molding and making our lives. In Lamentations, he is the broken-hearted God weeping over his people. In Ezekiel, he is the glory of God. In the book of Daniel, he is the stone cut out of the mountain without human hands who will smite the nations of this world. In Hosea, he is the child called out of Egypt. In Joel, he is the Lord who roars out of Zion. In Amos, he is the judge of the nations. In Obadiah, he is the Lord and the coming king. In Jonah, he is the messenger to the Gentiles. In Micah, he is Bethlehem baby who will deliver the people of Israel. In Nahum, he is the stronghold in the day of trouble. In Habakkuk, he is the Lord in his holy temple. In Zephaniah, he is the king of Israel. In Haggai, he is the Lord of hosts. In Zechariah, he is the Lord coming on a donkey who will set his feet on the Mount of Olives and split it in two. And in Malachi, he is the coming messenger, the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. All the way through the scriptures, it is all about the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. My rabbi friend, Hanok Teller, recently called me from Israel, and he had to dial a series of numbers from Israel, and out of the 7.5 billion people on the earth, my phone rang here in South Carolina. And it made me think about the nature of Bible prophecy and the process of elimination that centers and focuses Jesus as the promised one. For example, you push the number in Genesis 3.15, where you find the very first prophecy, the Proto-Evangelium. I preached a message one year, the first Christmas announcement from Genesis 3, where it predicts the coming of our Lord, that Messiah will be the seed of a woman. In other words, God makes it plain that he will incarnate himself into the human race, and so right away you eliminate the millions and millions of angels as a possibility to redeem us. Then you push another button in Genesis 9 in verse 6, and you see that he's going to come from a certain section of the human race. When you come to that verse, you eliminate the sons of Japheth, you eliminate the sons of Ham, and you learn that he must come from the sons of Shem. Then out of the sons of Shem, you push another number, and it brings up a nation within that section of the human race. And God makes a promise to Abraham that through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. You push another number, and you discover a certain tribe out of that nation, namely the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10, that the Messiah will come. You push another number, and you discover that a certain family within that tribe, the family of Jesse, the family of David, as 1 Samuel 16, 2 Samuel 7 affirms. Then you push another number, and you find that the Messiah will come from a special woman from that particular family. And in Isaiah 7, 14, the prophet writes that a virgin will conceive and give birth to the Messiah. You push another number, and you find where that woman is going to give birth to that baby. In Micah 5, 2, born in Bethlehem. You push another number in Daniel chapter 9, and you find the time frame by which the Messiah must come in Bethlehem, 
of this woman, of that family, of that tribe, of that nation, of that section, of that race, by a certain time, and the phone rings and Jesus is on the other end. It's just beautiful. All the way through the scriptures, it points to Jesus, the scriptures speak of me. So here are these men. God just keeps tightening and tightening and tightening the focus, and they are studying what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. What a marvelous picture of the inspiration that the Spirit of Christ, as he uniquely worked upon these prophets of old. And so they made careful search and inquiry. Verse 12 says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in other words, God illuminated the minds of these prophets that what they were writing about would not happen in their lifetime, but it would happen after them, that they were serving the church age. And by the way, there is a lesson here about how we should approach and study the scriptures. These men made careful search, that is, they applied themselves while they wrote the scripture and were inspired to pen the very word of God, then they had to go study the scripture, but they could not simply lean on their own understanding. They depended upon the spirit of God to help them to understand what they wrote. So God took the revelation he had given them and he illumined it to their hearts. Have you ever heard a Christian say, well, I had a revelation this morning in my quiet time. That's bad theology. No, you don't get a revelation God is not giving new revelation. The canon of Scripture is totally complete. But he does continue to give illumination. That is, he takes the truth that he has inspired, that is the revelation, and he illumines it to your heart. He helps you to understand what it means and how it personally applies to you. He continues to illumine the Scripture to those who are willing to study it in dependence upon the Spirit. Now, there is a balance between human responsibility and divine sovereignty as we approach the Word of God. I love what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.7. He said to Timothy, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, I think it's interesting that Paul did not direct Timothy to go to the apostles to understand the Scripture. He didn't even say to go to the church and understand the Scripture. The Roman church says you can understand the Scripture, only they can understand it for you. Well, Paul says to Timothy, a pastor, not an apostle, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, certainly God has raised up teachers in the church, and of course, those foundational teachers were the apostles themselves, but don't forget what the apostle John wrote. Let me read it to you from 1 John 2, beginning in verse 26. He said, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And as for you, the anointing, that is capitalized in many of your Bibles. The anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you abide in him. Now, if you read this paragraph of Scripture wholly, there are two safeguards that God gives us that will keep you from falling into false doctrine and error. 
First is the word of God, which they had heard that he had just highlighted in verse 24 of chapter 2. But then also in verse 27, he mentions here the anointing which you receive from him. And if you study 1 John, you discover that the anointing refers to the Holy Spirit. You can put it in lowercase and that the Holy Spirit lives in your spirit, or you can put it in uppercase. It really doesn't matter. But the focus in 1 John is the anointing is God the Holy Spirit. So objectively, you have the Word of God, but subjectively, you have the Spirit of God in you like these men who depended on the Spirit to study the Scriptures to see what what it means. Now, some honor the Word of God, but they neglect the Spirit of God who wants to be their teacher, while still others, they honor the Spirit of God, but they neglect the Word of God which He inspired. And so John says, understand, he says, you have no need for anyone to teach you. He's reminding them that the Holy Spirit who lives in the true child of God is the final arbiter. He is the teacher who illuminates the truth of Scripture. Now, John in saying that is not saying that you have no need for any teacher at all because he's teaching us that we have no need of a teacher. He's just informing us that when you hear a man or a woman open the Scriptures, be it a pastor teacher, which is an office men fill, or people with the gift of pastor teacher, which a woman can have in teaching women, or men and women alike that have gifts of teaching, those are three separate gifts I just highlighted, that that, um, when they teach, and if they're teaching something wrong, there's just something that just doesn't set right. There's kind of a check in your spirit. Oh, I'm not sure I get that or agree with that. But when it's true, there's a confirmation. And in that sense, John is affirming, you have no need for anyone to teach you. Now, think your way through this. Consider what I say, Paul says to Timothy, for the Lord will give you understanding. Don't miss the balance. Sometimes Christians will listen to a sermon or have a quiet time without God's help. You know what I tell the kids who come into the office? I tell them, look, every time I walk into that pulpit and I say, bow your heads and close your eyes, I tell them, I want you to pray for two things. One, pray for Pastor Carl that God would help me to preach. But I want you to pray for yourself. I want you to pray that God will speak to your heart. Would you do that? Oh, yeah, I'll do that, Pastor Carl. And I'll tell them, God wants to speak to the heart of a six-year-old or a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old boy or girl. But I said, you can't teach someone who's not teachable. And if we're not humble, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So there's this balance. There are some who read and they study the commentaries and they bring out all the language tools, but they don't ask God and depend upon the Lord to illuminate their study. They lean on their own understanding, and they don't ask for God's help. Still others, they, they don't help. They don't study. But they, they say, well, I had this spiritual experience, and let me tell you what God said to me. It's like these get these voices and direct revelation and text messages and emails from God. And there are some real dangerous teachers out there that are doing that very thing in our day, and I've mentioned to them to you by name before. Now, listen. I hear some of the things they're coming up with, and I say, God didn't tell you that. You say, well, how do you know? 
because it doesn't dovetail with the word of God. So there's this balance. We are to consider what God has said, but we consider independence upon the spirit of God and he illumines the truth and he gives us understanding in everything. Do you remember what Paul said to Timothy? Be diligent. You know, there are too many Christians who are lazy and they wonder why they're not seeing people come into the kingdom of God. They're just lazy. They spend more time in their social media and watching their favorite movie than they do in the Word of God. Be diligent. You could render it study and show yourself approved. It's speaking of a study, but not just any kind of study, a diligent study. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Listen, we are all beloved of God if we've met Jesus as our Lord. We are not all approved of God. Approved of God as a workman is dependent on your willingness to search the Scriptures and to dig into this book. And that's what these men were doing. They were diligent as to what the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. And so they made careful searches and inquiries. And so if you want to know truth, number one, you must believe that God gave it. And verse 11 tells me that these men recognized the Spirit of Christ within them, that He gave them the truth. Number two, you have to know the truth, and so you have to make careful search and inquiry. You have to study it. And number three, you must depend upon the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you. Now, if these Old Testament prophets who had a limited revelation that was given to them did this, how much more should we who have been given the complete revelation of God, the beginning and the end, should we apply ourselves to learn what God is saying? So, first truth is about a salvation that has been carefully searched out in the past. Secondly, I want you to see that our salvation is to be boldly preached in the present. Not only were these men carefully searching it out in the past, and so they wrote about the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, these men also studied our salvation that is to be boldly preached in the present, beginning now in verse 12. It says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now, they learned they weren't serving themselves but future generations. They were writing for the benefit of those who would live in Peter's day forward like our day, and they recognized that when these men wrote they were writing of a salvation that needed to be preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's sad in our day is we don't even know what these prophets wrote. In fact, we don't even know who a lot of these prophets are. I mean, think about it. You're walking down Hallelujah Boulevard there on the Golden Streets, and you meet this guy. Hey, man, what's your name? Well, my name's Habakkuk. Habakkuk, that's kind of an odd name. What do you do back on earth? Well, among other things, I, I wrote a book. Oh, you wrote a book. Oh, wonderful. What was the name of the book? Habakkuk. Hmm, I guess you had an ego problem back on earth too, huh? No, he was one of God's men. It's a great book. Most people can't even pronounce his name. Oba, 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 who? I've only heard one sermon in my whole life from the prophet Obadiah, and I preached it. I've never heard a sermon on Obadiah in my whole life. These are men of God. They are writing about the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And it was announced to you how by those who preach the gospel, how by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. 
the same Holy Spirit who worked in these men to write the Scripture now wants to work in us to preach the Scripture. And that's important. In the present, he illumines the truth, but he also wants to preach the truth in and through you. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2? Let me read it to you. He said, in my message... In my preaching, we're not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples just before he ascended into heaven? You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He was saying to them, there on the top of the Mount of Olives, don't even think about going to try to win the first person to me until I send the promise of the Spirit that the prophets wrote of. Let me ask you a question this morning. How dependent were you upon Jesus Christ to save you? Well, if, you were, if you're saved, there was a point in your life where you acknowledged that you were morally bankrupt that you could do absolutely zero to save yourself, and you put your full weight faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to forgive your sin and to make you a new creature. Now, let me ask you another question. How dependent are you today to preach the gospel? Colossians 2 says, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive him? In brokenness in total dependency upon the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection, the power of God to save you. How are you now to live? You walk in that same dependency, that same brokenness, that apart from him, you can do absolutely zero. And it does not matter whether you're in a lunchroom with your business associate or in the living room with your little child or in a Sunday school class or in a water room with your, with your students. You need to depend upon the Spirit of God. And when a man or a woman, a mom or a dad presents the Christ of God through the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God, people will be saved. And God wants to use us in that way. And so here were men who carefully searched out the Scriptures in the past. We are told that they are to boldly preach it in the present. But there's a third truth that I want us to learn. By the way, did you catch, before I leave that, did you catch the meaning of verse 12? It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things, which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Here it is. Things into which angels long to look. Did you know that angels are absolutely fascinated with our salvation. That's what this verse says. Things into which angels long to look. In fact, the word long to look is a a word not just to take a glance, but to stare, to concentrate on. It's the identical word that's used of John when he goes into the empty tomb and he looks at the grave clothes and he sees the headpiece separated from an empty cocoon. Things into which the angels long to look. They were gazing, they're scrutinizing, they're examining us. Remember, angels have never experienced grace. They have to learn grace, and they learn grace through the church, and God uses angels in the whole process of salvation. Do you remember 
They were there at the creation of the world. The angels, the morning stars, the Bible says, sang their song. They gave great praise to God, but before long, their song became a sad deluge as they realize a man has fallen and the judgment of God is about to come. And they see, oh, God is going to judge the world. Man has rebelled against him. He is going to do to them what he did to Satan and all of his fallen imps. And God says, no, they must be redeemed. And you know, they have to wonder, how can God who is holy and just and righteous still redeem man and remain holy and just and righteous? How is that possible? And they peer over heaven as they watch redemption unfold, and they watch a dress rehearsal with the angel of the Lord, the second member of the Trinity, God, who comes as the angel of the Lord, Jesus himself, there on Mount Moriah as he watches Abraham offer his uniquely begotten son until God provides a substitute. And they watch the blood of the lamb as it's slain and as the Jewish people put it on the doorpost and on the lintel as God delivers them miraculously out of Egypt. And they watch the Levitical system as thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals are slain year after year, century after century, because God says sin deserves death and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And they observe these prophets as they write about the sufferings of the Messiah and the glory to follow. And then one day, God says to one of his angels, Gabriel, go announce to that young virgin woman that she is going to carry the Messiah. And so they begin and prepare, and they watch over nine months as God leaves heaven and takes up residence in a woman's womb, and as he grows in humanity, he's developed, and he gives birth, and at his birth, they announce to those shepherds that good news has come into the world, and then they are there with Jesus as he begins his public ministry, and he goes through 40 days of temptation and they strengthen him at the end of that temptation. And the Bible says they strengthen him there in Gethsemane as he literally sweats drops of blood. They watch him as he's abused, as he's ridiculed, as they make sport of him, as they give him a crown of thorns, as they give him a reed for a scepter, as they give him a robe that a king would wear, as they shove him from person to person, as they pluck out his beard, as they beat him with their fists and their clubs. And they watch him as he's about to be nailed to a cross. And you know, maybe they expect an announcement from God, go stop it all. And then they hear Jesus. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? The old hymn said it. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. And so they put their swords back in their sheath, and they hear the Son of God shout, To tell us, die, it's finished! And three days later, God says, Earthquake angel, go roll away that stone. And that angel rolls the stone away, and another angel joins him, and they sit there in the empty tomb at the head and the foot. 
And Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany come to anoint his body. But the angel says, why are you seeking the living one among the dead? He is not here for he is risen. And then 40 days later, they watch the Son of God there on the Mount of Olives ascend up into heaven. And those men watch until they can no longer see him. And the angels say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And these angels announce his second coming. And when he comes again to the earth, the Bible says he will come with 10,000 times 10,000 of his angels. And by the way, angels are here this morning. You say, I don't see them. The Bible says they're here. They're watching you. They're watching some of you who are half asleep, some of you that are sending text messages, reading your emails, and they're watching some of you who are worshiping with all earnestness. Paul says, jot this down, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. How so? Because angels are watching. He says in 1 Corinthians eleven ten that women are to have a symbol of authority on their head. Why? Because of the angels. In Ephesians 3, we read, to me, the very least of the apostles, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And then he adds, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities, that's angels in the heavenly places. The angels are learning the wisdom of God as they study the church, the body of Christ. Right here this morning as I am preaching, angels are watching. And when the time comes for you to die, just like God in the parable between Lazarus and the rich man sent an angel to usher you into the presence of God Almighty, he will give you a warm welcome and he will usher you into his presence through one of his holy ones. Peter is saying, these are things into which angels long to look. The songwriter captured the thought with these words, holy, holy is what the angels sing, and I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption story, they will fold their wings, for angels never felt the joy that our salvation brings. They don't know grace. They have to study grace. Look, I'd rather be a saved sinner than an innocent angel. How wonderful and how necessary is this great salvation. Finally, our salvation will be revealed fully in the future. I'm wanting you to see that our salvation was carefully searched out in the past. It is to be boldly preached in the present. But third and finally, our salvation will be fully revealed in the future. Write it down. Don't look at me. Go home and think about it. That's really the theme of the revelation. Therefore, he says in verse 13, don't miss this, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. After Peter made these two great proclamations about salvation, he begins verse 13 with this word, therefore. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. In essence, he's saying, listen, it's time 
for some serious thinking, to be sober in spirit, to ready up your mind, to gird your mind for action. By the way, it's the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament where the Jewish people took their robes and they brought them up and they girded, they tucked them into their belts as God told them to be ready to leave Egypt in a rush. Even so, we are to uh, bring up the loose ends of our thinking. We're to gird up our minds for action in these last days in which we live. And one of the hardest things sometimes to get people to do is just to get them to think. One commentator said so well, while we are used, we're too frivolous to think. In manhood, we are too busy to think. In maturity, we are too worried to think. When we're dying, we are too sick to think. And after death, it is too late to think. But then, my friend, you will have all of eternity to think. Circle these words in verse 10. Did you see them? Two little words that are found in three verses. Verse 10, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come, circle the next two words, to you. The grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiries. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, and these things which have now been announced to you, circle those, through those who preach the gospel to you, circle that, by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things in which the angels long to look. Verse 13, therefore gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now pay attention, because all of this is for you. Why did the prophets prophesy in the past? For you. Why does the preacher preach in the present? For you. Why is Jesus coming again? For you. Friend, you're right in the middle of it, and it would be a shame for you to miss it. God wants you to be saved. Some of us have such a slovenly salvation and we're just happy. We, we, we just think, I walked some mile and some preacher baptized me. Maybe I did. And your life is no more changed than any unbeliever out there. And there's no passion in your heart for the things of God. There's no hunger to study the Word of God. There's no desire to give the gospel of God to those who are lost. You could care less whether your friend goes to heaven or hell, and I'll tell you why. Because you've missed the for you of this text. You've never met him. Why should other people be saved and you go to hell? God doesn't want you to go to hell. God loves you. Christ died for you. He was risen for you. But you must come in humility and admit that your sin is worthy of wrath and it needs to be forgiven and changed. And if you're not willing to admit that it needs to be forgiven and changed, you have no need for a Savior. You can't hold on to sin and hold on to Jesus and say everything's fine. You must decide, and you can decide today. You can be saved today. Today is the day of salvation. But you must come in faith and believe God's promise. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Friend, everything that I'm preaching this morning is for you, but it's up to you to say yes. Why don't you say yes? God says, whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. You say, I'm not there yet, Pastor. Then 
Ask God to show you. Say, Father, if, if Jesus is really your son, I am willing to open my heart for you to show me. Would you even make that kind of an approach? You say, I don't need any convincing. I know this is true. Listen, everything you know, the devil knows. That doesn't automatically make you saved. You must call upon the name of Jesus to save you. For whosoever will may come. You must receive the gift of God, which is eternal life. Would you say in simple faith, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, what a marvelous salvation you have blessed us with. May we never be ashamed of it. May we be willing and wanting and expecting opportunities, even this week, to share the best news this world will ever hear with some dear person that you would bring into our midst. Help us to be sensitive. Help us to be expectant. And help us to be ready to share because we've studied the Word of God and because we are going to share that Word in the power of the Holy Spirit. May that be true of this congregation. May it be true of hundreds of us that what happens here through the church as we're scattered through the week is unexplainable but by your holy work. We love you, our Father. You have shown us grace when we deserve nothing but justice. In your mercy and in your patience, you withheld wrath when we ignored you and you should have showered it on us but you have adopted us because you loved us. You've brought us into a second birth where we can know you and love you and praise you and walk with you. And for that, we give you thanks through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation this morning. And maybe you're here and you've made a decision for Christ, but you've never made it public. Now understand, I don't believe for one second walking this aisle would save anyone. But I do believe with all my heart what Jesus said, that walking the aisle, so to speak, is an outward sign of an inward reality, that if you know him on the inside, you won't be ashamed of him on the outside. And if you've never made your faith public in Christ, I want to give you that chance today. In the last service, we had a baptism. That was a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. If you've never been baptized since you've been saved, that's an important step. Maybe you're here and I've been saved, I've been baptized, Pastor Carl, but I'm not a member of a New Testament church. You should be. If not this church, find another Bible-believing church, but don't float. God calls His people to commit themselves and to put themselves under the leadership of a local assembly as we submit one to another. So if you have a decision to confess Christ, to be baptized, to join this church, we're going to sing this hymn, and you can step out where you are and come here and meet me in the front. Matt, would you lead us? Would you come?